who uh, two men sat next to each other at a bar. See what I mean? <laughs> and uh, one of them uh, looks over at the other one and he says, so uh, um, where are you from? And the guy said, well, I'm from right here in uh, Detroit. And the other guy said, well, you know, what did you have it? I'm, I'm right here from Detroit. Uh, where, where did you, uh, uh, where'd you go to high school? Uh, would you grow up here? He said, yeah. He said, I went to Franklin High School. I said, get out, man. I went to Franklin High School. He said, uh, what year did you graduate? I said, well, I graduated in 1993. He said, you got to be kidding me, man. I graduated in 1993 from Franklin High School. Where did you live in Detroit specifically? He said, I, I lived on Bridge Avenue. He said, I lived on Bridge Avenue. He, he, he said, what, what, what house did you live on on Bridge? You live at a Bridge Avenue. He said, so I lived at 3240 Bridge. I lived at 3240 Bridge Avenue. Well, just then the phone rang and the bartender picked it up and it was his wife. And he said, yeah, there's really nobody here left at the bar, just the Johnson twins and they're drunk again. And so <laughs> didn't think that was the right tone to have that underneath there for but I tell you that because uh, you don't have to be drunk to know uh, that you and I, we have a lot in common here this evening. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, we are men. Uh, we are uh, men that uh, at least most of us call the Summit Church our home. Most of us were genuinely offended by the list that uh, John uh, gave us and John and Bo gave us at the beginning. Um, you're here because uh, you are care. Uh, you're here because you want to know what it means to be a godly leader, what it means to be a godly man. Some of you are married, some of you are single, uh, some of you are older, some of you are younger, uh, some of you are um, older Christians, some of you are newer Christians, some of you have not yet become a Christian at all. Uh, but we are here because we um, are interested in the same thing, and that is what does it mean to actually um, be a man? So let me start out just by telling you thank you. Uh, thank you for giving um, this Friday night to this purpose. Uh, we have prayed for this for a long time. We have prayed that God would do something amazing in uh, the Summit Church, in the Triangle community, and we know, I'm not being chauvinistic here, but we know that when God really does something significant, that um, he often begins in the men, and um, quite often uh, he is going to sustain what he does to the men. Uh, so I know there's a lot of things that you could be doing. I know that many of you are very tired because you've been at work for a long time. Uh, and uh, this is not a great time for you, uh, but uh, you chose to be here. And so we are believing God that he is going to do a great work in us tonight. Um, we're going to put a lot in tonight. Uh, we, we talked about doing this over the course of the whole weekend. And just for different reasons, we just said, nope, let's just do it all on a Friday night. So it's going to feel like the proverbial taking a sip of uh, you know, water from a fire hydrant. Um, that's what you're going to feel like tonight. But uh, I think we're gonna have one powerful evening and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let me be very clear. This should have come out in the campus meeting um, that you had uh, before. I, I think this is, um, most of them should have made this clear that tonight is for us just the beginning of something. Tonight is the launching point for a men's study that's gonna take place at each of our campuses. Um, you should have heard about that at dinner. And what I'm going to do is I'm gonna teach you through the first two of those sessions in that study um, so that for the next five weeks, you will finish it up. Um, now, if you're like, well, I'm not planning on being a part of that study. I'd work my schedule. It's okay. It's not, you're not going to feel like you got left hanging, but um, that's what this is. When we originally conceived this, my idea was, let me bring in a couple of my friends from around the country, uh, come in and challenge us on manhood. These guys hear from me all the time. They've heard everything I've got to say. They don't need to hear from me again. But um, just after really talking and praying through things, we felt like, no, we don't want this just to be a one-time event. We want to see the men of the Summit Church come together to love, support, know each other, to do life together, to live in community together. 
So rather than just doing a one-off event, let's do this as the beginning of a study that we will uh, continue on. So I hope if you are able um, that you will continue on in this at your campus. We are going to be using this thing called Manhood Restored. Uh, it was written by a friend of mine named Eric Mason as a great um, Bible teacher um, has produced this. Um, what I'm going to do, I told you I'm going to walk you through the first couple of sessions. So if you have it, take it out. Um, you purchased this book by coming to the conference. That's what the money you gave was for. So you own that right there in your seat. Um, if you will open it up to page 11, um, this is where I'm going to give you the blanks here for the first session. Uh, I'm going to walk you through those. Um, I'm going to ask you to put your finger in on page 31. Go ahead and kind of find there and sort of dog ear that page because uh, that's the second session that I'm going to kind of do here at once. Um, and then a little later on tonight, I'm going to give you about half of the third session. So uh, just dog ear page 31. Um, if you run out of places to take notes on that page 11, uh, I think it's page 126 is where there's actually a notes section. Um, so you could just flip back there and if you just are wanting to write stuff down and you don't have room to, then um, that's where you can, you can put those things there, okay? One of the things that I hope to do tonight, uh, just to begin this study, is to debunk some of the lies that our culture tells us about what it means to be a man. Let's be honest, if I polled the thousand or so men here in this room um, on what it meant to be a man, I would likely get a thousand different definitions. Uh, I recently saw something by a guy named John Sowers who uh, wrote a book called Heroic Path in which he says, if you just take the stereotypes that are uh, 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 pop culture puts out about men, you would conclude that most men uh, in our culture fit into one of four categories. You got um, huge pickup truck guy. Uh, this is the one that drives a Ford Raptor with 50 inch wheels. It's got flames and skulls on the side, a license plate that says Biggin. Uh, when he fires up that, 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 that truck, it sounds like a pack of growling wolves. Uh, that's one kind of man. Then you got Jim Guy. Uh, Jim Guy, like G-Y-M Guy. Every morning, huge pickup truck guy picks up Jim Guy and they ride together to work out. Um, uh, Jim Guy carries a gallon of water and a backpack full of protein powder, uh, right? And you wouldn't touch that Chick-fil-A sandwich because you had your protein shake. He has barbed wire tattoos. He has blonde tips. He tans way too much. And he gives, gives his skin this kind of orangish, angry red tint. If you watch the Republican national uh, debate recently, you know exactly uh, what I'm talking about there. On the way to the gym, they crank up Nickelback. Uh, and Jesus and the angels weep uh, when they do that. Um, then there's number three, adolescent man guy. Uh, this is the guy who is trapped in perpetual adolescence. He is unemployed, but content. He spends long days playing video games. He's stuck as a squandering man, boy, child. He's unable to step into adulthood. He's a willing victim of his own low expectations with no vision. His story is small and self-centered. And then one day <laughs> he runs for president. Uh, so that's adolescent man guy. Number four, I didn't say who I was talking about. Uh, number four, mother boy. Mother boy, he is safe, he is well manicured, and he apologizes for everything. His life feels like one big apology. When he sees huge pickup truck guy at the water fountain, uh, he breaks eye contact. Uh, think Buster from the 30-year-old adult child from Arrested Development, if you uh, have seen that show. Buster attends an annual dance each year uh, with his mom called Mother Boy, uh, and everybody there is preteen except for him. Uh, that is unlike the daddy-daughter dance we are going to do, by the way, uh, but um, that's Mother Boy. We could go on. There's a few others, but um, uh, it, these are the stereotypes, and, and, and you say, I don't know if I really fit into any of those. I heard one guy say that, that our measure of manhood changes throughout our life in American culture. Um, you know, if you just think about who were the manliest men in different stages of your life when you're in high school, uh, it is uh, going to be measured, uh, middle school and high school is going to be measured by your athletic prowess. 
right? The guy that's the coolest guy is the guy that's the most athletic. When you get into college, it becomes your sexual prowess. Um, the guy that is the best with the ladies and scores the most and sleeps with the most girls. Um, when you're um, in your older years, when you're 30s and beyond, it becomes um, your earning capacity. You just think about who kind of the men's men were in each of those, who was at the top of the food chain, that was the, and that was the progression. Thankfully, we do not get our vision for manhood um, by, from anything that our, any narrative our culture is going to tell us. Um, I know that we are afflicted with um, all of those corruptions of manhood. Um, there is something probably in your mind that you are using to measure manhood. And what I want us to do is we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, these are very familiar chapters to you. Um, but we're going to look at what God laid out for um, what it meant to be a man. And um, we're going to take uh, the, the, the narrative straight from him. Genesis 1 verse 26 and 27, I know that some of you may not have brought your Bible tonight, so let me just put it up here like I do at our church here in the weekend. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In other words, we are made in the image of God, which means that it is in being like God that we will find our fulfillment. So we look to him and we learn about ourselves. Let them have dominion, because that's one of the characteristics of God is that he rules. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then male and female, he created them. What I want you to see from that is that both men and women were created in God's image. It means that we are equal in the sight of God, but Genesis is going to make very clear in Genesis 2 that though men and women are both created in the image of God, and though they are both equal in the eyes of God, they are created differently. The word that's used in Genesis 2 for the woman that gets translated as helper is, it's not a good translation in English, it's the word edzer konegdo. Edzer konegdo, which literally means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind, and the another means it's different, but same kind means it's similar. And then this sounds like a contradiction, but that's exactly what the word means. The two are not exactly the same. When God looked at man um, and he was alone, God said, it's not good. Man is not good. He wasn't complete. God did not make another one just like the man, except with long hair and different plumbing, because that would have been twice not good. It would have been not good, not good. If the two of them were exactly the same, then one of them would have been unnecessary. In order for the not good to become good, she had to be different. They were equal. They were created both in the image of God, but they were created differently. And the two together the two together were going to be a more full reflection of the image of God than one of them by themselves. So here we are, workbook point number one. If you're taking your notes there on page 11, man on planet earth was to represent the beauty and the reign of God, who God is to all of creation. That's what we were to do is we were to represent the beauty and the reign of God, of who God is to all of creation. Now jump over with me to Genesis 2 and let's look more carefully at the specific roles that God has given to man. I'm going to show you five leadership roles that were specifically given to the man in the Garden of Eden. I want you to note that this is pre-sin. This wasn't God scrambling after man had sinned and now he's going to figure out how to, and this is all a result of the curse. These are things that are pre-sin. If you have been around the Summit Church for a while, you've probably heard me give these. Um, I think they're important enough that we need to review them constantly because if you're looking for a job description as a man, this is it. Uh, this is it right here. Um, here we go. Number one, number one, we're going to see that man is a leader in provision. We're gonna, you read through Genesis 2, which I'm not going to take time to do. 
Um, You see that God puts man in the garden and he gives him a job, verse 17, to tend the garden and to keep the garden. Before a woman is ever created, man's got a job and he is the one that is providing. She was to come into a home where it was a stable home, um, where, where he was providing for her and he could give her a, a life that, that, that she would be taken care of there. Um, I always tell girls on this that if a guy cannot hold down a job, if he's lazy, if he's a terrible student, if he's ever won a Halo tournament, uh, you probably just not mess with him. All right, one of my favorite verses, I give this to a, a lot of single guys, um, Proverbs 24, 27. Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. What Solomon's saying is, is you need to get going with a job. You need to become a provider. Uh, you need to be gainfully employed. And then after that, you think about building your house and bringing in um, a wife or family, if that's what God leads you to. He was to be a leader in provision. Number two, spiritual leadership. When the woman was brought into the world, the man already had a relationship with God. If you look in verse 16 of chapter two, you'll see that God gave the command to not eat of the forbidden tree to the man before he created the woman in verse 18, which means that after God created the woman, man had to relay that command to her. The first man was given the privilege and the responsibility of leading his wife into a relationship with God and explaining what God had said to her. So he was to be a a spiritual leader to her. He was to invite her into also a relationship with God. That doesn't mean he would always teach her and doesn't mean that she'd be way below him. It just means that he was to have an active relationship with God that she joined. Number three, romance. Romance, he was to be a leader in romance. In verse 24, after she is created, God said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Notice who's the one that's doing the leaving and the cleaving. It is the man that is leaving the father and mother and cleaving to his wife. He's taking the initiative. He is inviting her into a stable home. He is the one that is um, beginning the romance. In fact, the first first recorded words of man in human history, the first thing that a human being ever says that we know about is a love poem he wrote to his wife. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which rhymed in Hebrew. Um, I think that's probably, there's probably a lot more to what he said there. Um, because there is no way a fully alive human being just created a male has just seen the creation of a perfectly built, and by the way, that's not a, uh, a crude way of saying it, the Hebrew word for how God made the woman. The word for create for man is just he created. The word for um, the way he made woman is bara, which means built. So this woman that he built, there's no way a man looks at a naked woman and all he says is, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's probably a lot more behind that that God said, I'm just gonna leave that out. Uh, It's R-rated. I know this is terribly out of fashion in our culture today, um, but what that means is that men ought to be the ones from the beginning of the relationship all the way through that are taking the initiative um, and leading in romance. Um, I, I say that because I think there's an epidemic we have, especially among single guys. Um, for those of you that are in college, we, we call it around here the friendationship, um, where you never quite have the guts to ask the girl um, out. And so you just sort of like, you know, just you kind of become friends. And then at some point she's like, I think it may be more than friends, but you just don't have uh, the, you know, the kahunas to kind of pony up and just say, this is what um, I'm, I'm doing this for. If you like her, ask her out, put some deodorant on, um, shave, uh, put some product in your hair. Don't wear anything that says Star Trek on it. Put, you know, pull your backbone out of your mama's purse and ask her out. Just take the leadership and romance. Um, become somebody who shows initiative. And that's something that persists for the rest of your life. To those of us who are married, this is the easiest thing for us to lay down as we cease to be the leaders in romance. Number four, protection. 
protection. When God says that man should cleave to his wife, it means that he's becoming one body with her. He is supposed to look after her the way he would his own body. In Ephesians 5, Paul's going to take this teaching here in, in Genesis 2, and he's going to go all the way to laying down your life for her. And you're going to protect her. He was to lead in protecting her. Number five is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Paul says the model for all of this leadership is Christ. We're to love our wives like Christ loved the church who laid down his life for his bride and leveraged all of his power to serve and protect and to exalt and to bless her. Men, if you want a job description for your life, if you want a way to evaluate how well you are doing, I would map out these five things and see how well you are doing in leading in them. We, of course, are not talking about a dominating authority. One of my favorite um, definitions of spiritual leadership or what we call spiritual headship. It, spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do. It is empowerment to do what you ought to do. It is not the, the ability to begin to control our families as much as it is that this is what God has given me and said, I want you to lead in these five things. This is what it means for you to be in my image. I didn't make her the same way. I made you this way, and this is how I want you to lead. It's called what we call being a servant leader. A servant leader is somebody who takes initiative for the benefit of others. That's a really important definition. A servant leader is somebody who takes initiative. That's the leader part, but it's for the benefit of others. A selfish leader is somebody who takes initiative for their own benefit, right? A servant is somebody who just lives for the benefit of others. But a servant leader, which is what man created in the image of God was supposed to be, is somebody who takes initiative like his wife, if they're married, or his children. He takes initiative, but for the benefit of others. C.S. Lewis said, he says, it is true that man wears a crown in the marriage, in the relationship, but the crown is a crown made of thorns first. Uh, it is a crown of, of suffering where we lay down our lives for those that are around us. Uh, you say, well, I'm single and I, um, none of these things apply to me yet. I'm not married. Um, if you will focus on becoming these five things, I don't want to oversell this, but you will become the most attractive man on the planet to any girl that is out there um, because they are created in the image of God and they were created for this kind of relationship. I know not everybody's the same. I know not leadership won't always look the same. Um, but this is how, this is what Jesus looked like. He looked like those five things right there. And when you become like Jesus, you become very, very attractive. Uh, so I would focus on becoming those. Um, that's your first point. Here's workbook point number two. Point number two, relationship meant that God and man were in union and they were spiritually connected. God created man. God created us so that what we did in leadership would only work when we're connected to and dependent on him. Probably the reason that men have abused their leadership so much is because they lost that connection to God. And so our leadership became very dominating. It became something where we used women. It became something where it was all about um, aggression and it was all about ambition for our own sake. We ceased to be servant leaders and we became selfish leaders. Um, God created us so that we're like, um, I've used it, this analogy before, but we're like the, um, the earth orbiting the sun. If the earth decides that it doesn't want to orbit the sun anymore, it's not going to work out well for the earth for very long. Um, the earth has to be in orbit with the sun in order for everything to, to stay together, to hold together. Gravity, everything, the atmosphere, the temperature, all of it depends on the relationship to the, to the sun. In the same way, man's leadership becomes a curse when it's not connected to Jesus. Um, I've heard it described you know, this way, to change analogies with you, that in every man's life, you've got, think of it like concentric circles, you know, circles that, that go outward. In the middle circle, um, what in your core, um, put your relationship with God, and you may think of that as also your relationship with yourself, how you see God, how you see you, your walk with God. That's your, your center core. The next circle around that is going to be your wife 
and then your family around that. Um, and we're, you know, we're talking about um, how well that relationship is going if you have that and then your um, family there. And then you've got, let's just say everything else. Um, when you have a solid core in those first couple of circles, then you're gonna be able to deal with all kind of conflict in those outer circles. On the flip side, when you've got everything all right in this outer circle, in your job or whatever's going on, but, but there's a rotten core or your relationship with your wife is not where it's supposed to be or things are not right in your home, then it doesn't matter what kind of things are out there because um, how well it's going because it, it's unstable at the core and it's just not going to work. I hope that what comes out of this weekend is some of you will make a decision, if you have not already, um, that you are going to be a spiritual leader for your family because um, you're the greatest gift that you can give your children. The greatest gift you can give to your children is a dynamic walk with God um, that they see and they emulate and they just learn to walk after God the way that you walk after God. Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, right? Whether it's your career or whether it's your self-fulfillment, all that'll come if you put God in the right place. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he said, he said, basically it goes like this. Um, there are first things, which is your relationship with God. And then there are second things, which is everything else. When you put first things first, then second things are going to be fine. But when you put second things first, when you focus on your career or whatever, um, you put second things first, then you're going to lose not only first things, you're also going to lose the second things. The only way to keep the second things is to put the first things first. What's in that core is the relationship with God. That's the only way God created it to work. So in points one and two, what we see is what man's role was. And then number two, you see how it was supposed to work, which leads to Genesis three. And what you're gonna look in Genesis three, you're gonna see that humanity's fall happened through a failure of the man to lead. Now, I just went over this a few weeks ago. I'm at our church, uh, so I don't mean to belabor this, but it's just so core to understanding um, who we are and what, what we are supposed to be doing. Um, when, 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 when the original sin happened, uh, where you know, Eve took of the fruit, there is some clues written in how the narrative is written that show you the original sin was at least in part a failure of the man to take spiritual leadership. Because it says in Hebrew that when God gave, I mean, it was Satan gave the fruit to the woman, that after she ate of it, she turned and handed it to the man who was with her. And what I explained to you is that who was with her in Hebrew means standing right next to her. He wasn't somewhere else in the garden, you know, doing man stuff, you know, killing and grilling and, and uh, you know, whatever. He was, he was right there with her. He, you know, 1 Timothy 2 says that the woman was deceived. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, the man wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what was happening. And you think about what's going on here. He knew it was sin. He knew that God had said not to do it. And he knew that God had said that the day they do it, they would die. And he probably interpreted that literally. And he thought, well, okay, she's about to eat this. If she drops dead, then I'm going to know I shouldn't take it. And if she doesn't, then it's going to be okay. So, I mean, pardon the, the dirt bag sits there and just kind of watches and says, you eat it first. And she takes it, she takes a bite, and then she doesn't die. So she hands it to him and he, knowing full well what he's doing, he takes that that apple or whatever it is, the fruit. I think what you're seeing there is a picture of really how men fail to lead or they're, they're tempted to fail to lead in every generation. And that is, it's not, a, listen, a sin of omission as much as it is a sin of commission. It's not that there are bad men, it's that there are absent men. 
there are good men who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think I've told you it like this before. If many of you showed the same initiative in your marriage and your family that you showed in your job, you'd have an awesome marriage and family. If you showed the same initiative in your job that you showed in your marriage and family, you'd be fired by the end of next week. Because it's not that you're a bad person, it's that you're just kind of sitting back there letting her take the lead. You're leading from behind. It is, it is a sin of omission. It's also indicated in what God said when he came down looking for man. Do you remember? Where are you? There is an entendre there. There's an intention there that God is saying to man, I think in every generation, where are you? Where are you? Not so much what have you done, but where are you? Where are you in these five areas of leadership? Why haven't you grown up and become the man that you were supposed to become? That's still God's question. Where are you men in the church? Where are you? Why is it that we have so many more women volunteer here at this church than men? This is not about signing up volunteers. I'm just trying to use that as one example. Why is it that the International Mission Board, which is who we send most of our missionaries through overseas. I, I, one of them told me the other day, um, for the hardest places around the world, Muslim areas where it's hostile to the gospel and there's a good chance that you are going to be in literal harm's way and you might die. To the IMB, women applicants for those places outnumber the male applicants four to one. Where are you is the question. Where are we? That's the question that God is still asking us. My friend, John Bryson. So we've got a generation of males that never grow up to be men who take their role as servant leaders, boys who never become men. We've created a new name for it, he says. We call them dudes, the man child, boys who can shave. Most men, he says, feel like they're good husbands if they provide food and shelter for their families. <laughs> That's the standard. <laughs> Possums give their offspring food and shelter. Is that the bar that we've now set for manhood? The true man is a servant leader. He leads spiritually, romantically, he takes responsibility. Boys blame, men own. Boys take, men give. Boys complain, men figure out. Boys pout, men endure. Boys wish, men do. Boys start, men finish. Boys stiffen their neck, men bend their knees. Here's our third point, workbook point number three. Daddy deprivation has impacted the furthering of a lack of manhood being clarified and understood by men. Daddy deprivation has impacted the furthering of a lack of manhood being clarified and understood by men. Robert Lewis calls this the absent father wound, and he defines it this way. The absent father wound is an ongoing emotional, social, or spiritual deficit that is ordinarily met in a healthy relationship that now must be overcome by other means. God's intention was that sons were to learn this from their fathers. A guy named Lance Morrow, who um, wrote in Time Magazine, not a Christian in a long shot, but it's always interesting to me when somebody from a non-Christian perspective stumbles onto the truth of what the Bible says. The damage caused by a father's absence may be severe, may last a lifetime. It is a shadow. The longing of sons for their fathers is almost physical. Something passionate, something profound. You want to know what that is? Because they're created in the image of God. And what they're really longing for is God, their father, but God gives like a training wheel in between there, and that's supposed to be the dad. We're supposed to learn to relate to God by first relating to our father, right? That's what he's talking about. It's often mysterious to sons what it is they want from their fathers. But I've seen it in other men, and I see it in my sons. They're longing for me. They're longing for me. 
Every son I've heard needs to hear three things repeatedly from their fathers throughout their lifetime. Number one, I love you. Number two, I'm proud of you. And then number three, you're good at fill in the blank. I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are really good at these things. Um, I had a great father. In fact, he's here tonight with some of his friends. I heard these things all the time. I've always said my dad was my biggest fan at anything that I did. He thought I was the greatest at it, even when he knew that I wasn't. Um, when that doesn't happen, it is devastating to the guy growing up. When the father's missing, the son grows up with a warped sense of manhood, reaching out, searching for someone to declare him to be a man, and he begins to prove that or attempt to prove that through other means. Quite often, if he grows up in a complete fatherless environment, he turns to violence. He might turn to sexual prowess, like I mentioned. One California school study, listen to this, noted that 98% of its special education students, and we're not talking about mentally challenged, we're talking about behavioral um, special education students, 98% of them were emotionally damaged young boys whose one common characteristic was a father loss. When fathers were actively involved in the life of kids in the entire school system, and the fathers went to at least two or three activities with the kids every year, the children were 46% less likely to use drugs, 27% less likely to use alcohol, and 52% less likely to skip school. Girls are going to have their own kind of deal with this. They grow up yearning for attention. Um, I, I read this thing um, last year. I was talking about um, if you take the major atheists of the, um, that are famous of the last 100 years, um, people like um, uh, Aljuas Huxley and Madeline Murray O'Hare and um, some, well, there's like six of them, and that's the only two I can remember. Um, he said that all of them had one thing in common, and that is they had a father who either abandoned them or abused them in childhood. What that means is that, yes, they have intellectual reasons that they've come up with for why they don't believe in God, but they didn't start as intellectual reasons. It started as a hatred against God because it was a hatred against their father. The wound is being inflicted upon sons at epidemic levels today. I'll give you just one example. Um, Bo Jackson, he's probably the greatest athlete that ever lived. My father has never seen me play a football or baseball game. Can you imagine, here I am, Bo Jackson, one of the so-called premier athletes in the country, and I'm sitting in the locker room and envying every one of my teammates whose dad would come in and talk with him after the game, have a drink with him after the game. I never experienced that one time, and I would give anything for it. Bo Jackson. Now, for some of you, this is how you grew up, and I don't want to imply to you that there's no hope. In fact, the good news of the gospel is, I'm going to jot these things down, is you realize that your fathers are just there to be a temporary shadow of God. That's what Ephesians 3.14 tells us. They were just there to be a shadow. They were like training wheels. And yeah, when they're not there, that's, that leaves a real absence. But what that means is that when you were growing up and you become a man, you can realize that they may have failed you, but that was just a shadow. The substance was God the Father. And you can forgive them because they were never designed to be the ultimate thing. They were just there to connect you to God. They were like a ray of sunshine. I explained last weekend, a ray of sunshine that was to warm your face, but you look back up along it to the ultimate father. Here's what Paul says, verse 14, Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in Greek, this is the word patria, fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. All fatherhood gets their fatherhood from God. So you can realize, here's the other thing, you can forgive the Apostle Paul recognizes that, that our fathers were, were imperfect shadows, even the best of them. Listen, some of you were hurt deeply by your dads. Most dads weren't out to hurt their sons. Most of them didn't say, let me figure out how I can kick my son between the legs, metaphorically speaking, and screw his life up. Most of them didn't say that. Many of them were ignorant. Many of them were selfish. In fact, maybe what you got to realize is that many of them did that because they'd been wounded by their fathers. And they never heard that from their fathers. and They never learned how to love. 
And some of you are not gonna be free from your past and be free to be whole men until you can let the wound that came from your dad go. You can forgive him by realizing that he was broken just like you are. But the bottom line is that daddy deprivation is a big problem because men no longer model for their sons what godly leadership looks like. Give you one more here before I hit the last two things here. American society, says John Piper, has divorced itself from heaven because American fathers have ceased to pattern their fatherhood after the fatherhood of God. There is no hope for the children of America unless their fathers return from the exile of self-serving behavior and offer their souls to the mercy of the father who created them. The fathers of America must come to know God as father and to see his fatherhood as the pattern for their own. Here's word by point number four. Jesus came to reestablish and reaffirm the aspects of biblical manhood that had died. The aspects of biblical manhood that had died. If you flip over real quick, I just want to do this for you type A people that are going to need to have these blanks filled. I kind of combined sessions one and two because I want to do it as one here. Go to page 31. Here's your blanks. It's what's in yellow if you want to do it. This is the gospel. Jesus is fully man and fully God. He didn't just come as a, you know, God apparition. He came and he took on flesh and he showed us what it meant to be a man. By the way, he wasn't married. Because you don't have to be married and you don't have to have sex to be a man. You realize the most manly man who ever lived, the man who was most fully alive, never one time had sex, not once. So that's not like that makes you a man because Jesus never did. I sometimes tell people, every, you know, single people, every time you pray, you pray to a 33-year-old single adult every single time. Right, so you can be fully alive. He's fully man and fully God. Number two, number two, Jesus put himself in a position to step into a simple world where he would be tempted by all things, yet he would have no sin. That's the gospel, is that Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live. And he did it without sin. He faced every temptation we face. He faced sexual temptation. He faced the, the onslaught of people telling him it wasn't good enough. He faced all those things. He did it without sin. Number three, Jesus was the ultimate man because he lived up to God's standard of holiness. He lived, wholeness, you know, means wholeness. It means he lived fully, alive. He wasn't rich. In his lifetime, he wasn't that famous outside of a very small circle, but he was fully alive. Number four, Jesus set the example for courage, sacrifice, and sensitivity. He showed us what a real man looked like. Number five, show me. Number five, there are only four he could count. Thank you. Y'all listen to this. The world fell into sin through the failure of a man to lead. God saved the world by sending a new man. In fact, he was called the second Adam who would lead where the first Adam failed. Who would serve the church where the first Adam served himself. Jesus displayed more manhood in the manger than Adam did in the garden. In the garden, Adam looks like a man, but he acts like a boy. In the manger, Jesus looks like a boy, but he's doing the most manly thing imaginable. He was fighting to the death for the ones that he loved. Here's number five, your fifth point back on page 11. This one has five. Christ came to be the restorer of all things and to make all things new. It is when you put Christ back at the center, following his example, that things begin to go back into orbit. In the gospel, we find both the power and the model of what it means to be a servant leader. So here's what the Apostle Paul will say. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another. I love this, out of reverence for Christ. It means that when I look at my wife or I look at the people that I lead at where I work, which is here, when I look at that, I, I look at them and I say, you may not deserve me 
submitting to you. You may not deserve me serving you. I may be smarter than you. I may have more stature than you. I may be right and you might be wrong. But behind you is Jesus Christ. And I'm going to submit out of reverence for him. I am going to serve you out of reverence for him. When my wife wrongs me, and I wrong her more than she wrongs me, but when I know that I need to forgive her, it is a fight sometimes because I'm like, you don't deserve it. And I need you to feel what you just made me feel. But I look behind her and I see the outstretched hands of one who has been crucified for me and he says, forgive her for my sake. She's always the second audience in everything that I do. He's the first one. I'm doing it out of reverence for him. I can be a servant leader because he was a servant leader who died for me. Love your wife, he says, like Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. In the gospel, you're going to find the power to love others out of reverence for Christ. When you see Christ as the ultimate husband to us, you're going to become a better husband. You're going to become a better lover. When you see a God who made himself a servant leader, you'll cease to use your power for yourself, and you'll begin to leverage your power to serve the way that Jesus leveraged his power. That's why I tell you, you if you want to become a good man, you don't need to hear me give you 10 steps to manhood or eight steps to becoming a a good husband or or, 20 steps to becoming a good dad. You need to learn the 10,000 steps that Jesus took to save you. And when you learn that, you'll become the kind of man that Jesus was. It is in reverence for Christ. It is in light of his love that you become that. He is the model for us. Gospel-based leadership, I love this, is gospel reenactment. That's what I'm doing. I'm reenacting the gospel with those that I lead, with those that I serve. I'll give you one very practical question that's been very helpful for me in this. I, I gave it to you a couple of years ago. Um, I, I would challenge you to leave from this so your wives know that it wasn't a waste of time. Um, do for one week, every single day, ask this one question. You remember this? We did this a couple of years ago. How can I serve you? Just ask. Just literally let those words come out of your mouth. How can I serve you? Just every single day for a week. How can I serve you? And you watch the disposition of your spouse change. Around the house, ask them, just how can I serve you tonight? How can I serve you? With the kids, how can I serve you? In romance, maybe you have to think, how can I, what is it that I would do that would make her feel my love for her? How can I serve you? And what if for one week you could put up the, but she doesn't and, but she hasn't and how come she won't, and what if you put up all that for just a week? And you're like, but you don't understand, we haven't had sex in like three weeks. You put all that up and just say, how can I serve you? And what if you loved her like Christ loved you for a week? And just watch how it changed you. (laughs) Sexually, if you ask that, how can I serve you? I could lead you some wonderful places, okay? So... (laughs) I am convinced, men, that the healing of our society, the healing of our families, I hope that you won't hear this as chauvinist. I I think it's biblical. It begins with the man. Just as the failure of one man in leadership brought sin, so God brought salvation through a man. And it is now men following Jesus in obedience in his power that brings healing to the parts of the world we live in. Listen, every sociological study done points to the fact that the leadership of the father is the greatest determining factor on how the kids turn out. Listen to this. If a child is the first one in a family to get saved, so of the whole nuclear family, the child is the first one to get saved, there is a three and a half percent chance that everybody else in the family will get saved. Three and a half percent. If it is the mother who is the first one in the family to come to faith in Christ, there is a 17% chance that everybody in the rest of the family will get saved. 
If the father is the first one in the family to come to faith in Christ, there is a 93% chance that everyone else in the family will come to faith in Christ. That's what makes Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, say, as goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the community. As goes the community, so goes the nation. So if you want to change the nation, change the community. If you want to change the community, change the church. If you want to change the church, change the family. And if you want to change the family, change the man. God, give us a generation of men to rise up again and take the servant leader roles that they have been called to take because the triangle, North Carolina, the United States, and the world would not be able to bear what God would do in our midst when men just begin to say, I want to lead, I want to love, I want to serve like you served me. For many of you, that's what you're missing from your marriage. It's the relationship that makes all marriages work. It's the relationship that makes singleness work. It makes you thrive as a man, as a leader, as a, a worker, as, a, as, as whatever it is that you do, is knowing God through a relationship with Christ. I hope that if that's something that you have never begun, that you will begin this Friday night, and I hope it's something that you have begun, you will deepen it, and this will be a rallying call to become a spiritual leader for the sake of everybody around you. Why don't you bow your heads and let me pray. Father, I pray for the men who have business they need to do with you. Men, with your heads bowed, I'll tell you in just a minute, we're gonna, we're gonna take a break. But I just wanna say, where is God speaking to you right now? Maybe in just a minute when we all get up and walk around, maybe you just need to stay right where you're sitting. Chances are, if you gotta do business with God, there's somebody near you that they'll notice you sitting and they'll say, hey man, can I pray for you? And let's make sure we take care of this right now. What it means for Jesus to be Lord and Savior is that somebody's in charge of your life, either you or him. Is it you or is it him? If it's you, then right now you can surrender to him and say, Jesus, from here on out, I want to follow you. What it means for him to be Savior is you're either trusting his mercy and grace to give you salvation or you're trying to save yourself by being good enough. If you've never received Christ as Savior, you can say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I want to receive you. If you've never done that, you can receive that gift right now. Father, I pray that you would solidify. I pray that you would move. I pray that you would do what you are wanting to do here. I know that you brought these men here for a purpose in Jesus' name. Amen.